Hello everyone, I'm George Canyon. Welcome to Life as a Diabetic, the highs and the lows. This is episode three. We are having so much fun getting to do all these episodes. And um, this episode actually is very exciting for me. Uh, we're going to get to talk to a friend of mine, a uh, young fella by the name of Austin McDonald. I won't get into it yet because we have to get him on the line on Skype. But um, it's uh, this episode's all about aviation, which is a real passion of mine. It's been a passion of mine since I was very, very uh, young. And as I said in episode one, I drove mom and dad crazy. Every time an airplane would be flying over, I'd be like, stop the car, I gotta get out. And I'd have to see this airplane fly over. I wanted to be an Air Force pilot so bad until, um, until of course, I was told I could never be in the Air Force and I could never fly airplanes. At the age of 14, I was diagnosed as type 1 diabetic, as you all know. And um, it's been a very, um, very long, um, arduous fight sometimes, just trying to, um, I guess, bury those dreams deep down inside. But uh, finally, you know, getting to be a pilot now for the last uh, 11, 12 years and and getting to fly airplanes and um, and be a part of making changes in Canada with Transport Canada. Um, I never dreamt that could ever happen, uh, but it has. And um, the guest we have today is a true inspiration to all type 1 diabetics, young and old. And it's the one thing I always say, um, the type 1 diabetic community is the most positively stubborn people I've ever met. And what I mean by that is they are positively stubborn. They put their mind to something, you get it done. You see, when you're diagnosed as a type 1, you're forced to kind of grow up overnight. Um, it's like jumping into ice cold water two feet first, no option. You don't get to dip your toe in. And um, that whole process of, of having to uh, take on responsibility, uh, be determined and dedicated, um, it has to be adopted quickly when you're when you're first diagnosed and even adult onset i've talked to um i've talked to 40 year olds who all of a sudden were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and um, they said the same thing they said wow i thought i was a responsible adult but um, when i got type 1 diabetes i learned discipline and i learned responsibility like i'd never seen before and um that's uh our guest on the uh on the podcast today is um the perfect example of that and getting to know him and his dad uh, family quite well over the last uh, few years has been a true honor to me. So without further ado, because I will just go on and on and on and we need to definitely be hearing from Austin, uh, let's, let's get him on the line right now. Well, as promised on episode three here, we've got my buddy, Mr. Austin McDonald, Type 1 diabetic since he was 13 years old, lives in up in Edmonton, born and raised in St. Albert, Alberta, and live right now on Skype. Austin, how you doing, pal? Good morning, George. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing awesome. I don't let the cat out of the bag and say who you work for or do any of that stuff. So let's go, let's go right back to the beginning for you, uh, which is not, that, not too long ago. Um, the day you were diagnosed. Let's talk about right before you were diagnosed right before because this is something that um, is so important for people that are uh, not diabetic to understand how we all have different symptoms and we all go through different things. So uh, lead me into when you went to the hospital for your diagnosis. Prior to that, what were you experiencing? Okay, well, I was a pretty normal kid growing up, uh, pretty athletic. I played rugby competitively at the age of uh, 13, 14 years old uh, for Team Alberta and stuff like that. 
Nice. Um, that winter I was, uh, training to, you know, get better hitting the gym a lot. And then, uh, all of a sudden I got a weird infection on my finger that, uh, I wouldn't heal and really? went to the doctor, had that last a few times and to no avail. And we kind of just moved on from it. And every once in a while would have to take a course of antibiotics. But, uh, then, uh, shortly after Christmas, I, uh, really started to lose a lot of weight. Um, basically lost close to 30 pounds in two or three weeks. Uh, drinking water all the time, going to the bathroom night and day um, to the point where my mom, who is a former psychiatric nurse and a, a dentist, kind of noticed things weren't going uh, too normally. Mm. She's seen this story before and uh, he took me to the doctor, which at first didn't believe me that I uh, had something wrong. He thought I was actually on drugs, which was <laughs> quite interesting. Really? Um, yeah, actually, we, we went and got blood work done that day. Um Went uh, went home and kind of passed out for a while. Uh, went back to the Medi Center because we hadn't heard anything a few hours later. And again, the next doctor didn't believe me until he checked the labs and he told me to go straight to the Stollery Children's Hospital after he did because mm. I was in uh, severe ketoacidosis. So yeah. um, that's basically how it started. Spent three days at the uh, Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta with a bunch of great staff. Uh, they took great care of me and I went through their uh, two-week outpatient program that uh, taught me how to be a diabetic. Wow, three days. Three days. Oh, three man. days in the hospital and two weeks of uh, outpatient. And uh, I was yeah. admitted to the hospital February 1st. So just coming up on, uh, or just past 10 years now. Just past 10 years. So you're 24 now, is what you're saying. I'm turning 24 tomorrow morning. Tomorrow <laughs> morning. Oh, man. Well, yeah. 10 years as a, di a type 1 diabetic. And um, so you've... You haven't seen the old archaic days, and um, I saw them, but I wasn't diabetic then. It was my grandma that I got to see that. Um, as far as your treatment goes, let's talk about um, how you treat yourself now without letting the cat out of the bag so, so much. Uh, I, uh, at first I was actually uh, on MDI and then, uh, basically that fit my rugby life after I was diagnosed to continue playing rugby competitively and yeah. insulin pump didn't make sense. But once I stopped playing rugby, there was no other option in my mind besides, uh, an insulin pump. And so I'm on the, uh, insulate Omnipod right now, as well as the Dexcom G5. I'm switching over to the G6 soon. I just need to get rid of the, uh, or use up the last of the G5, uh, sensors. Nice. Nice. Well, you're actually treating yourself the same way I treat myself. So there's uh well, and rightly so, um, a, a lot of type ones are treating uh, that way right now. And, uh, you just can't go wrong, um, treating that way. So let's, uh, let's move into a little more of the skinny of this podcast, which we're going to get into rather quickly here. But before we do, um, what does your dad do for a living? My dad is a professional uh, airline pilot with uh, Air Canada. He uh, is a captain on the Boeing 787. Yeah, I knew I just had to set it up. <laughs> and that's, of course, Captain Ed McDonald, if you're ever flying on one of his flights. Um, good luck. I mean, uh, enjoy yourself. I have to, I have to rib him. You have to For give him a those that fly out of Calgary, beware. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully he's not listening. I'll never yeah. get on one of those flights again. So you, you kind of grew up with aviation then. Yeah, so uh, basically uh, when I was born, my dad was a pilot of Canadian Airlines, and before that he was in the Air Force, and flying had been uh, basically our, our life. I grew up with a father as an airline pilot, which presented its own unique benefits and challenges. 
Um, but uh, basically, I was bitten with the flying bug really early on in my life. And mm -hmm. I always thought airplanes were cool and interested by mechanical things. And uh, yeah, I had my first fan flight uh, with my dad in the back seat of a small like Piper Warrior or something in Cold Lake, and nice. uh, never looked back. Yeah. So as far as flying goes, now you're diagnosed at 13, um, so there's no way you're you know even looking at a, a pilot's license at the age of 13. So what's I mean, obviously you were thinking a career in aviation. What what was your first step? So. Of uh, uh, before I was diagnosed, the the plan for me was to essentially follow the similar footsteps my dad did: get an engineering degree, go into the Air Force, and then eventually make my way to the uh, to the airline uh, pilot uh, career. Uh, unfortunately, the first thing they tell you when you're diagnosed type one diabetic is you can be anything you want except being in the military and flying professionally. So, <laughs> yep. That uh, that was a bit of a hit, and I uh, internalized it in my own way. I decided to focus on rugby, and then eventually um, focused on getting my uh, engineering degree at the University of Alberta. Um, but the funny thing is, uh, it, you can never really shy away from from the bug once you have it. Uh, when I was in grade twelve, I got my recreational pilot's license, uh, which basically allowed me to fly a two-person bug smasher around in good weather, which is a fun activity. It's it's that's actually the purest, most joy uh, flying I've ever done. But uh, I still wanted more. Um, it wasn't really until my dad flew with someone by the name of Steven Steele yeah. that I uh, realized that potentially being a professional airline pilot was a, was a, a possibility because Steven himself was a airline pilot but then was uh, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes uh, later in his career. Uh, and he had lost his license initially but fought back to uh, – to uh, be one of the few that regained his license after uh, after diagnosis. So after hearing that, it kind of rejuvenated my uh, my passion for wanting to become a pilot. And uh, uh, basically, through the work we did together, we were able to uh, push transport. I don't know how much more you want. Yeah, to we, uh, we we won't get too far into it because we're going to save that for another episode or two. That may take two episodes. But we're definitely going to have you back on to um, to talk about that whole process, but hopefully with your dad, because your dad was a, an integral part of all that as well. And maybe even get Steve in there as well, because he, he's retired now anyway. So what's he really doing? He's just exactly right. hanging exactly. out at home. Thomas, right? <laughs> so, so you get your rec pilot's license. And of course, now you have to get your private pilot's license at some point. Yeah. And so take me from... Where did you where did you go from there? Okay, so you have your rec, and now you're going to go to what school? So I uh, I did my rec at the Edmonton Flying Club, right? And kind of the, the interesting turn of fate was uh, I wanted to get a, become a better pilot as a rec pilot, so I went to the Mayo Flying Club in uh, Edmonton out of Villeneuve, yeah. And uh, I learned how to fly their tailwheel Cetabria. and uh, during that time is kind of when we got in contact with you as well as. Uh, uh, I found out about Stephen Steele, and we I got on the uh, insulin pump at that time. Mm -hmm. It was able to get my Category 3 medical, mm -hmm. which allowed me to become a private pilot. Uh, and at that time, at uh, Nemeo, I got my private pilot's license done on the Cetabria, and then uh, went across the street to Centennial Flight Center to uh, do my multi-engine uh, instrument rating on yeah. a Hypersonica 3. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. And then from there... Of course, um, without giving too much away, um, once we had convinced gently 
sometimes not so gentle, convinced transport um, to allow a type 1 diabetic, of course, to become a commercial pilot, first in the world. Um, that was you. That that was. It's kind of uh, weird to think back on, but yeah, I'm the, the first uh, commercial pilot with pre-existing diabetes in uh, in Canada and likely the world as well. So that's uh, well, pretty. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's the world because yeah. you know, from what I heard, Canada was the first. Yeah, um, I know. I heard a story the other day that, uh, of course, the U.S. have, have uh, or are following suit. I believe Australia is following suit as well. But don't hold me to any of this. This is. Um, um, hearsay, but uh, I did read a few things that had said that. But so you're now a commercial airline pilot without a job, and where do you go? Who do you apply to? I'm gonna guess probably your dad is with Air Canada, so that would make sense. Yeah, family ties run deep with uh, with Air Canada. The uh, the funny thing is everything worked timing wise worked out great. Uh, I was uh, when I got my private my multi engine rating. I was in second year university. Uh, at the University of Alberta, I was doing a co-op program, so I was supposed to have a work term. Um, but I kind of doubled down on wanting to become a commercial airline pilot. And during my work term, I went to uh, Seneca Flight uh, College in uh, Peterborough, Ontario, for an eight-month program. And with that, they uh, essentially trained me how to be a multi or uh, a multi-crew pilot uh, to the you know, best of my abilities. Uh, and with that, it uh, presented a great opportunity to uh, interview with uh, Jazz Aviation who mm -hmm. operates uh, on behalf of Air Canada Express. Right. And so uh, after I finished that program, however, I still at that time didn't have my Cat 1 medical. I uh, came back to Edmonton, finished off my engineering degree, and in the last throes of the semester, I got my medical and my commercial pilot's license and uh, did all the requisite exams in order to apply uh, to Jazz and got an interview. And uh, a few months later, I, uh, I was hired at Jazz Aviation uh, in October, uh, in August of 2019. First officer, Austin McDonald. First officer, yeah. And I, uh, I drew the Dash 8 Q400, oh, which is uh, awesome. It is an awesome airplane. It's a yeah. sports car, in my yeah. opinion. Uh, and I've been flying the, flying the line since about November. Now, your first flight, which I got to be on, um, <laughs> which was hilarious because I've never done that in my life as far as getting on a, an airplane to fly to Saskatoon and get off and get back on and fly back to Calgary. But At 5.30 in the morning. Five, no yes, 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> um, now, on that flight, I believe you said that because that was your first line flight, you weren't, um, you had to wait two landings or two takeoffs or something. I don't know. Yeah, it, was, it had to be three uh, landings and takeoffs I had to observe as pilot monitoring. So it's not like I'm sitting there with my hands on my uh, legs. I'm no, doing, no. A, yeah. doing a lot of the typing, doing a lot of the work, yeah. uh, talking to air traffic control. But uh, the following day, I got to do my first landing in uh, Kamloops, uh, BC. Yeah. And the uh, the funny thing was actually, the uh, it ended up that there was a JDRF researcher who had saw your Facebook videos the day before. Yeah. That was on my flight that uh, that morning. So actually, <laughs> right after my first landing, I ran into the terminal there and got a picture with her. I'll see uh, if I can find That's that. awesome. I think I remember, was, I remember hearing that story, actually. Yeah, so, it's a small world. Just, take, uh, us, take us through that because I've never, I mean, I've got sim time on a Q4 and as a private pilot, I've flown, been blessed to fly a lot of aircraft. But when it comes to big heavy haulers, no, I have not. So, you know, you're landing, um, you're landing a 172, which everybody knows is usually the, the uh, aircraft you start learning on when you're getting your pilot's license. Um, we know what it's like to land that, even a twin even at Seneca, we know what it's like to land. But what's it like to land a Q400? 
It's uh well, it's it's an interesting machine because <clears throat> it's a uh, essentially the same wing and design as the classic Dash Eight, but it weighs a lot more. So yeah. it's a lot heavier on the controls. You have to be a lot more on the power. You have to be in front of the airplane, which is makes it a bit of a challenge, and it's quite fun to fly. But it's uh it's a lot heavier, and uh, yeah, going from a <clears throat> excuse me a one seventy two to a uh, Q four hundred is a pretty big jump. It sits a lot higher on the ground and. Uh, when you're kind of coming 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet over the runway, you're kind of going, okay, I should probably start pulling back on the stick now because the ground's starting to get a little big. <laughs> <laughs> when the ants get bigger, that means it's time to flare. Exactly. So now that we could talk airplanes all day, but but um, as life as a diabetic, which is what the podcast is, the highs and the lows, let's talk about your uh, your diabetes control when you're in the cockpit. Um, what, uh, what do you have, what are the stipulations? What do you have to be doing when it comes to that? Now you are on a CGM and an insulin pump making the, making the world a bit easier for you. Yeah. So the, just to underline here, the CGM is absolutely a, only one of the only reasons why I can say I have the control I have. It gives yeah. me the background knowledge and what my body's doing at all times. However, Transport Canada po- protocol says I have to still use traditional finger pokes. So um, essentially before a flight, usually about 15 minutes before takeoff, I'll poke my finger, draw blood, and it has to be between a certain range, between yeah. 6 and 16 is the range. And I like to keep my blood sugar between about uh, uh, 7.5 to 12 yeah. during flying. Um, and then uh, every hour in cruise, uh, same thing, poke has to be between a certain range. Uh, if I drop below or above that range, I'm allowed to correct a little bit either with sugar or a little bit of insulin. Uh, and then uh, 30 minutes before landing. So usually about top of descent or just prior to top of descent, I'll, I'll poke my finger once more. Mm-hmm. And so depending on the day, I could go from doing four tests in a day to up to 12. I think I've done 14 tests in a period of eight hours. So it, uh, it can be tough on the fingers. But uh, it, in order to you know be in the range, I need to be to be fly and not cause any delays saying, oh, I need a snack. The CGM is by far the... The, the one tool I use the most oh, in, yeah. in terms of making it in that range is keeping it there. It's amazing. I mean, with an iWatch on too, you can literally turn your wrist and see your sugar and go back to your business. Exactly. It's so exactly. quick. I'm sure Transport Canada will, um, will eventually, you know, catch on with that. I, I understand where their mindset is with the traditional, you know, poke and check, but, um, the C, the Dexcom CGM is, uh, so bloody accurate it scares me how accurate it is and i've put it through its i put the g6 through its tests you know taking my my sugar from my finger and then checking it against what my phone is telling me which of course the watch is telling me as well and it is unbelievable for me um thank god for technology or you wouldn't be sitting in the cockpit hey exactly well and that's the reason you know i can understand when they made the rules in the 80s and the or even before then obviously Uh, you know, diabetics not being able to fly with, you know, you had to pee on a stick and oh, wait yeah. hours and that was your blood sugar even before that. Yeah. You know, that's hard to control and regulate. But nowadays with the technology we have with instantaneous glucose measurement, there's uh, there's no reason why uh, diabetics can't, uh, can't fly. Well, and the other thing too, and a lot of people don't realize this, parents of a type 1 diabetic kids will, will of course agree 100%. The level of discipline that um, you all of a sudden have to have and is are thrust into is incredible and every type 1 diabetic kid i've met young and old alike the level of discipline scares me like they're just so regimented and even if you're not in tight control this level of regiment just exists and so i would be 
I would always and will always be happy to know there's a type one diabetic in the cockpit of anything I'm flying in because I know that that discipline level is there and uh, and they're just going to be an amazing pilot. Yep, yeah, yeah. We as pilots, we follow the same sort of strict procedures and standard operating procedures and calls yeah. that diabetics do. It's it's kind of interesting. It the the it, it fits like a glove, a hand in a glove kind it of thing. Does. Next thing, military. Next yep. thing we do is we convince the military because I'm, I've said this and I'll continue to say it. You get a platoon of type one diabetics in the military, there's nothing they're not going to accomplish. They will, they'll figure out how to fly to the space without a space shuttle. It's kind of, it's amazing to watch. Well, Austin, this has been fantastic and you are a true inspiration to all type one diabetics and especially those type one diabetic kids out there. Um, if you happen to be uh, one of those kids listening, this is living proof right here, what we would call back in the old days, proof in the pudding, that if you uh, take control of your diabetes, you can live your dreams like First Officer Austin McDonald, who I would venture a guess will soon be Captain Austin McDonald. I can't give you a timeline on that, but uh, it might be soon. It might be soon. Well, listen, buddy, um, friendly skies. I, I don't know. I don't want to go into all the acronyms of keeping the wheels, the rubber side down and all that stuff, but... Um, God bless you for fighting the fight and getting out there and, uh, and flying for jazz. And uh, hopefully I'll be on one of your flights coming up soon. That would be a lot of fun again. And maybe we can get uh, into the cockpit of uh, one of those aircraft your dad have there. Not Air Canada's aircraft, but one of the smaller <laughs> ones because those are the ones that I can handle. I'm not a commercial pilot. so <laughs> We'll make it happen, George. We will, pal. All the best. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later, George. Right. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. Well, that was, uh, that was our buddy, Austin McDonald, type 1 diabetic since he was 13 years old. And happy birthday, Austin. He just turned 24. Wow, what a story. Um, unbelievable. And um, such an example for, uh, for young type, type 1 diabetics. Control your disease. Control your diabetes. Take control of it and live your dreams. Uh, not just like me, but like... First officer, Austin McDonald with Air Canada Jazz. I, I can't help but smile when I say that because it's something I never ever thought I'd ever get to say about another fellow type 1 diabetic. And um, we're going to get into an, um, more detail with what happened with Transport Canada, that story. Uh, we're going to have Austin's dad, Ed McDonald, on, uh, who was a huge, huge part of uh, getting Transport Canada to allow type 1 diabetics to, to um, become commercial airline pilots and hold the Category 1R medical. And we're also going to hopefully talk to um, uh, retired officer, uh, Captain uh, Steve uh, Steele, because Steve, uh, the stuff he accomplished um, before I even could have dreamt of, of being a part of all this, uh, really truly was um, industry leading and it really paved the pave the road for all of us type 1 diabetics so that's going to be coming up on a future episode as well thanks so much for tuning in and uh, being a part of life as a diabetic the highs and the lows i'm george canyon your host and until next time god bless and uh, take care of your diabetes we'll see you all soon